Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Let's Kill Twitter, the show that aims to detox your timeline with the art of conversation. Let's Kill Twitter is recorded live and on Zoom and this week's guest was comedian and podcaster Sid Singh. Sid's been very involved in issues around refugees and migration and his tweets tonight reflected that. He also chose a tweet about Senator Joe Manchin and his dirty coal money and we talked about comedy and cancel culture. I hope you enjoy the show. Please follow us on Twitter at LKTZoom. Okay, I have got the, the nice green signal, which suggests that we're now live, we're now streaming. So uh, good evening. It's Sunday night, it's eight o'clock, and you're watching Let's Kill Twitter with me, Julian Hall. This is the show that aims to detox your timeline with the art of conversation. Thankfully, I don't have to do that alone. And joining me tonight is the comedian and podcaster, Sid Singh. But before I introduce Sid, just a bit of time-honoured admin. We're now live on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook. Um, you can also watch the record of the show on YouTube. So if anyone you know is going to miss the show live tonight, please direct them to YouTube. Uh, please subscribe, of course. Uh, and you can watch this show and all the previous shows there. Crucially. Please follow us uh, on our Twitter account, which is at LKTZoom. Uh, that handle is spread liberally across this screen. It's on my little byline. We're obviously share screening the Twitter account. And we've got a lovely ticker above our heads uh, with all our details and also uh, Sid's details as well. Uh, so the thing about that is that if you do follow us during the show live, that means that you can ask questions, make comments and share your favourite tweets with us, which would be fantastic. We absolutely encourage you to do that. Um, the rest of the time, our Twitter account is where we'll post tweets, uh, where we'll post clips of this show and also um, news of the next show and generally try and curate um, as fantastic a selection of tweets as possible. Uh, that's that's the, the name of the game. That really depends on how lazy or disenchanted I am. Um, but there'll be a load of tweets. Uh, I mean, we won't get through them all tonight. Uh, the, the priority, of course, is the guest tweets. So speaking of which, uh, it's now time to introduce Sid Singh. Sid is an award-winning comedian who's written for and appeared on the BBC, so Comic Relief, for example, and also on Comedy Central. Uh, he was recently cast... Uh, uh, he was recently a cast member at the famed Boom Chicago Theatre, whose alumni include Seth Meyers, Jordan Peele, and Jason Sudeikis. Uh, now, you can just finish the first leg of his tour, uh, of European tour, with his brand new hour called California Dum Dum, and that is now going on another leg of the tour, and that is, I did make a note of, uh, of that, but Sid's going to tell us what the next leg is called. What is it, Sid? Illegal? Uh, illegally Funny. Illegally Funny, that's the one. Uh, and that is the follow-up to American Refugee, um, so the, the sequel to the show, American Refugee, which is about the time that Sid helped beat Donald Trump in court in order to protect refugees who were victims of domestic violence. So a lot to ask Sid to, uh, tonight, for sure. So please welcome to the Zoom room, Sid Singh. Hey, oh. thanks for having me, Julian. Yeah, not a problem at all. Not a problem. Managed to somewhat stumble through my verbal diarrhea there, but we, we, we made it. Hooray. We did. Um, I didn't even mention the cold. I didn't even go for the sympathy vote of like, I've had two weeks with the cold people. If you've got any tips on how to get rid of the cold, please tweet us. 
Um, how are you? I mean, you must be a bit exhausted. Because I am. It's been a it's been a crazy tour. How many dates are we talking? Oh, hang on. Let's get the let's get the tweet up. So the crazy part is that the tweet is wrong. Oh, come on, Sid. It's your tweet. I know. So if you see, there's a correction that I put right under it. Uh, where uh, I, I say seven countries and 13 countries, but actually uh, 13 cities, but actually it was nine countries and 18 cities. Uh, nine countries, 18 cities. Not In bad. eight weeks. Yeah, it was exhausting. So, and Roman- so hang on. So Romania, is that four cities in Romania? Yeah. Okay, so Romania is like top of your, this is like the Euros. Romania is like top of the league. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to some extent. I mean, it, you kind of just go where, wherever they book you. And uh, I got booked in, uh, the four cities were Arad, Cluj, Oradia, and Bucharest. Wow, right. Okay, so when you say wherever they book you, who was, uh, who was doing this all for you? Uh, it's all me. It's all me, and then uh, uh, I'm using tips and tricks from uh, 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 other comedians who have done these cities. Right. So the promoters in those four cities, once they heard of me, uh, uh, reaching out to them became much easier for us to to find a deal that worked for both of us. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So what about the next leg? How long is that going to be? Uh, it's it's still being booked, but the plan is to do a lot of these same countries and a lot of these same cities, but maybe add the Nordic uh, uh, countries as well. So probably bump it up to something like 13 countries and you know, oh. seven cities. All right, you went, you went a bit on us there, but you're okay. You're back, you're back in the room, it's fine. So add something Nordic into the sort of cocktail. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fantastic. So look, so tell us, so the show's going to change title. Is that, uh, is that a content decision or is that kind of a rebrand or... Uh, it, it was based on the fact that, you know, I did this tour mostly to uh, uh, work out the show. Uh, basically, yeah. I had uh, uh, the bones of a show and I basically did these 18 cities to sort of like keep writing it, keep um, uh, improving it. And now Legally Funny is sort of the finished product. Right. OK, fantastic. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, right. So I'm just sorting out a few technical issues uh, while we uh, while we start. That's fine. Because um, you can tell I haven't done it for two weeks. There was a few few buttons I needed to press. But don't worry, it'll be all right in the podcast. The podcast version will be fine. Um, right. So, okay. So, so what's, I mean, give us just give, give us a little flavor of the show in terms of, of, of the content. Well, the idea was to sort of examine what makes people smart. Because I think in the last 18 months, I think a lot of us have realized that a lot of our friends and family are a lot dumber than we ever expected them to be. Uh, and even worse, it's that those people we found out to be dumb, uh, 100% of them think they're geniuses. Okay, okay. And are you, um, did you draw on sort of, um, I mean, obviously there's plenty of fodder for that on social media as well, but did you draw sort of quite closely to your own circle for that as well? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so guys like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, they were all in my backyard, essentially. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But also, like, I grew up around a lot of geniuses. I I talk about the story of my father, who uh, is a former gang member who went on to become one of the greatest cancer scientists alive, uh, who also um, remained skeptical of global warming. Wow. Okay. Right. So, so, okay. So, how do you? All right. So, that's a really interesting jumping off point because we talk about your show, and I actually, how do you deal with with someone who's obviously prove themselves in one particular 
field and then and then is is obviously seems to be so counter to a body of opinion on on another it's a great question and you'll have to watch the show to find out <laughs> yeah that is also a great answer <laughs> yeah all right brilliant well listen Sid that's that's what's going on at the moment with your with your life in real life uh, and obviously you've got this this next leg and we'll absolutely tweet out the the dates on that um and uh, to those people just joining us because of a slight technical hitch you are luckily you didn't miss too much at the start that's fine it's been two weeks so i hold my hands up in the air for not pressing the correct buttons but to be fair i've had to learn to speak all over again as well it's amazing what i've done in two weeks so Sid, what about online what about um what about your your life online in terms of uh how you use twitter you know whether you enjoy it uh you know who you like to follow how you like to interact that kind of thing so I very rarely use Twitter the way I, I, I normally did. I, I go the other way often um, because I have a lot of like experience with human rights law and stuff like that. I primarily try to follow a bunch of them. Uh, yeah. I, find, I find the hysteria over Twitter to be largely overblown because I think most people uh, uh, follow a lot of assholes and then they get a lot of, you know, awful stuff in their feed. But it's like, yeah, that's what happens when you follow a bunch of assholes, you know? <laughs> If that you sounds, follow uh, yeah. a bunch of funny people and a bunch of you know really really kind-hearted people, you tend to get some good stuff in your feed that uh, uh, is with both wealth oh. information and stuff you can actually follow and believe in. Okay, now that's interesting because what you've just said almost seems like an invitation to uh, cr create your own um, uh, what's they call it um, not bubble um, echo chamber essentially. Of course. Okay, but I mean, but then surely the people who are following those people who irritate them and drive them absolutely insane are making an effort to get out of their echo chamber. Yeah, if you get frustrated with it, then uh, you're getting what you deserve. Like, I, you know, the, the, the thing people always mistake, and I think the problem with your question there, if you don't mind me saying so, ah, is that uh, I have no problem with an echo chamber on Twitter. The problem is when you have an echo chamber in the world. But okay, but to some to some extent, you know, Twitter is a is a reflection. How do you distinguish between the two? The only place that you the most the place that you are going to suffer from being in an echo chamber is largely on social media. The problem is that social media is not the world. Uh, most people are what? not actively on social media. <laughs> I know. So I find uh, I, I find the entire premise to be mistaken because in reality, okay. uh, uh, if you're going around like you know, my, in my life, I tour the fucking continent. Yeah. And I meet a lot of different people. I'm very comfortable having disagreements with people uh, 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 over a glass of beer or whatever, but uh, I'm not going to subject myself to that when I'm not you see, that's... Uh, uh, outside. When I'm in home and I'm on Twitter, uh, I'll follow the people that I like. I also don't look at it as an echo chamber because, you know, uh, uh, let me give you an example, right? Okay. I, for me, it's more about trusting the people who are on the ground uh, within these fields, right? Okay. So, for example, uh, uh, during the Afghan withdrawal, what you often saw were people going, oh, why isn't Biden listening to the generals? Why isn't he listening to the generals? I think that's a fair point. It's an interesting mm -hmm. point. Um, to me, when it comes to refugee law or homeless legal services and stuff like that, I want to follow the people on the ground. The, you know, people call them activists, but to me, I just look at it as the lawyers who are dealing with the day-to-day -day cases of the mm. people who are actually suffering the indignities. Yeah. And following them, uh, 
I don't see it as an echo chamber as much as my chance to learn from experts. Yeah, no, that's a, that is a useful distinction. I mean, obviously, yeah, because I mean, essentially, what we what I was talking about was more of a kind of an editorial kind of scrum and ding dong and and uh, yeah, and the point scoring. And I understand what you're saying. You're talk, yeah, talking about people on the ground and and also I, I think it's sort of interesting as well because you're. To your job to some extent, I know this is slightly different, but your job to some extent actually does put you in real life situations to actually, as you say, sit and have a beer with people and discuss these issues. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people, obviously keyboard warriors being part one of them, is that they don't they don't necessarily do that. It's not necessarily how they're engaging with right. these wider issues. Um, Absolutely. And, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things, too, where I find the correct balance for a lot of these things is that we need people who are reasonable and we need people who are not reasonable. Yeah. You know, especially if you're trying to get something accomplished, you need people who are willing to compromise and you need people who are willing to push those people to get a better compromise. So um, what's, a, what's a good example of that? Is Afghanistan a, a reasonable example of that? Uh, I would say Afghanistan is unfortunately a terrible example. Of that. <laughs> uh, um, okay. Just because we never had um, a coherent uh, 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 choice in Afghanistan. Mm. Because we, we invaded under such foolish pretenses and then stayed under even worse pretenses. We were never able to have a clear... Um, uh, a decision tree of, of what we should or shouldn't do, where and where we shouldn't do it, and how to build coalitions to build there. However, you look if you look at things like um, the current negotiations that Biden is having and stuff like that, there are the people that are pushing for everything on his agenda to be included in the deal, and there are people who are pushing to have a deal. And both are needed because at the end of the day, a deal is necessary. However, it's only so useful based on what's included in it. Yeah. So you just need people to be able to push for both of those things. But I mean, in terms of like taking you back a little bit when you said that the people who made the point that, you know, why isn't Biden listening to the generals? I mean, you actually said that was, that was a fair point, but I think given the narrative that you've just set out from your point of view, there was, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a view that you would have listened to, for example, would it necessarily? So the, the issue there is that I think, you know, the generals are given a specific task in that um, in that uh, situation where it's like, you need to help stabilize the country, uh, 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 ensure democracy flourishes. We're going to spend a lot of money, but you will not get the benefit of a lot of that money, right? So we're basically tying these generals' hands behind their back and asking them to do an impossible task, which is why their opinions are valid, which is why when they say we need to delay the withdrawal, uh, uh, they are making a good point. And when Biden says... Uh, more important than delaying the withdrawal is ensuring that it happens in the first place because whatever chaos we create will still be a small blip compared to the larger chaos of staying over 20 years or 30 years more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, fair enough. Uh, uh, we not even to say that that was the correct decision is simply to say that seems to be his position. I mean, this brings us, we can go, I think this point was a really good jumping off point for, to go straight into your selected tweets because uh, <laughs> sure. obviously you've, uh, you've picked one here. Let's just uh, bring it up. Somewhat slow. Here we go. Um, right, so Gardner's net. Yeah, he's. I was seeing. Uh, so it's a kind of like a sort of refugee and migration expert. I think it would be fair to say I've seen certainly seen her pop up in my timeline before. Um, so if you if you just sort of read this tweet um, for us and for our podcast listeners, um, and then uh, basically just 
kind of go forth from there, really, if you want. Right. So this is this is taking a slightly different take on it. This is about the UK uh, involvement in Afghanistan. So uh, uh, Zoe's tweet is basically saying that, you know, I'll read it. The Afghan resettlement so far, uh, scheme so far amounted to nothing more than a rhetorical device, allowing anti-refugee voices to shout about the official route without bothering with the fact that it still literally does not exist. Uh, so, for example, uh, the, the theoretical official route would be a refugee from Afghanistan coming from Kabul, right? Uh, uh, landing in one of the ports of entry, such as an airport. The issue with that is, of course, that there are no flights from Kabul to the UK uh, that make it easy for a refugee to get on it, uh, if not impossible. Therefore, well, you, the thing that people are calling for doesn't exist. Right. Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, you cut out very briefly, but it's fine. That's fine. You, you, it was very brief. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So where are we with, um, uh, and I'm actually wondering whether to take as a double the other tweet um, as well, um, which is welcoming with dignity. Um, but should should we take these two together? Do you think? Well, or? they're they're quite different, but no, they're they, they're ultimately talking about yeah, similar things, right? Yeah. Which is that going. often countries have an issue with refugees who want to settle in their country after approaching a third country first, right? Yeah. So, for example, if you're in Afghanistan and you get to the UK by taking a flight from Pakistan. The question is, why didn't you just resettle in Pakistan? Yeah, why yeah, isn't that yeah. country safe enough for you, right? Yeah, yeah. It ignores the realities on the ground. It ignores the fact that it's actually quite easy to enter Pakistan from Afghanistan and murder the people who are trying to not get murdered. Mm. Uh, it's very simple, right? I don't want to get murdered and I live in Kabul. I will go to Pakistan in order to actually go to a country that will keep me safe, which yeah. I believe to be the UK and which under the UN Declaration of Human Rights and the Geneva Code, should allow a Geneva Convention to allow us to, to do such things. Uh, conservatives in multiple countries disagree, uh, often over you know various weird reasons, one being pricing, uh, uh, which again, ignores our responsibilities to these things. So where are we in, um, in terms of um, the US and the UK in terms of um, re refugees coming from Afghanistan? Are we, know, are we nowhere? Because I mean, of course that story's now gone from the media agenda and a lot uh, out of the consciousness of most of us, except for those people, you know, as you were saying earlier, who were on the ground and are following these things and tracking these things. Well, it's a huge mess. I mean, a lot of people are using the sort of uh, the statement, the official route, as an excuse to deny a lot of their asylum claims, despite saying we want to resettle anyone who mm. uh, uh, helped us in the war yeah. and doesn't want to get murdered for helping us in war. And we're basically reneging on all over uh, the world, not just the UK, the US is also not doing a great job with it. Uh, uh, and that's really what this uh, uh, tweet speaks to because for all the people shouting the official route, there is no official route. And when you shout official route and deny people's claims, you are murdering them. You are sentencing them to death. And there is no other way to look at that when you're on the ground. I mean, clearly, obviously, what what's British and US governments having to deal with the Taliban now in terms of processing i assume there must there must be some taliban involvement or this are, we, are you talking about are we still are we talking about the second country stage here as opposed to actually getting out of afghanistan i'm not sure what the situation is with um with this sort of cycle if you like some people are able to pay their way to escape from afghanistan they get to pakistan and then they try to come to the uk 
often the UK rejects their claim and flies them back to Afghanistan. Right. Okay. So when you where say they're that, then murdered. So when you say that pay their way, so this is how does that work? What's what's the sort of journey there? Well, it depends. A lot of people take a lot of different routes, right? Basically, once you are going on the let's say unofficial routes, you're basically at the risk and whims of coyotes, uh, uh, which is a term for smugglers who will who yeah. will take you across borders, who prey on you, try to take all of your money, and in return offer you your only chance of getting to a country worth living in, in your opinion. Yeah, yeah. And then when you say the, I mean, that's the, is there an official, is there an official uh, route at the moment? No, there no. isn't, is there? No, okay. I mean, this is just, just a <laughs> sorry mess, really. I mean, obviously, and I obviously appreciate a lot of noises made at the, the start of the, the, the crisis, the pullout, I should say, um, well, both, but, you know, that refugees would be welcome and, and, you know, so on and so forth. It was very interesting how quick people were to condemn the administration for uh, uh, abandoning women who have now all abandoned those exact same women as they try to claim refugee status in our country, our countries. But I'm so, I mean, you know, I mean... Again, there's very, very funny stuff from a comedian, I know, but... <laughs> well, no, but the thing is, see, this is it. I mean, I filled you tonight, obviously, as a, a comedian and and podcast and I very much uh, had uh, the law is my ass as in, in mind when I did that and actually that that would be quite a useful um, moment to sort of uh, mention that I don't know whether the pod the podcast have anything to do with the, the case with no, Trump no no no, no, no. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I did a podcast with my old law school professor Joe Kreitz uh, where we examined uh, the legal news in the headlines and then interviewed these experts in all these different fields it was really great uh, 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 just a podcast, just as an experience for me to meet all of these experts fighting the good fight who had to deal with. Um, so it's a real good ground. I mean, that podcast is a real good grounding for, for you know, sort of activism and, and obviously just generally mm -hmm. understanding these points in law. And that's absolutely worth a mention. Just, is the podcast still going? Uh, no, no. It oh, ended okay. when I moved to Europe three years ago. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah. it went for a good number of, uh, it seemed to go on for, a, how long did it go on for? I have no idea. It's a good oh, question. It's, it's you seemed, have two years? It seems, yeah, I just remember writing it quite a lot on your biography. <laughs> right, 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 right. But uh, also, so tell us a bit about, and I, I, I'm glad that I haven't uh, missed asking about this, but tell us about that. Uh, in the intro, we talked about how the show American Refugee was about the time that you helped beat Donald mm -hmm. Trump in court to protect refugees who were victims of domestic violence. What was the story there? Right. So the Center for Gender... So I, I took a class, a refugee law class, under a professor named Karen Masalo, who uh, briefly worked for the Obama administration to help reform their refugee uh, guidelines that they took in parts. Um, and uh, uh, then I started basically volunteering for them. Well, Stand-up shows in San Francisco uh, and, and abroad to raise money for them. Uh, okay. Because they had a client called Miss AB, who was a victim of domestic violence, who basically escaped from South America, sorry, Central America, to uh, uh, America uh, in order to gain asylum. Uh, uh, an Obama-era judge uh, uh, denied her claim, and then under the appeals process, basically lost. Uh, long story short, he basically refused to listen to the appeals court until Trump became president, in which case they reopened the case. Uh, 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 we lost on that next appeal and her uh, claim was denied for the next six years. 
until Biden got into uh, power and uh, we were able to allow her back into the country uh, uh, three months ago. So the, so the, the win came literally just three months ago then? Yeah, yeah, the final win came three months ago, yeah. Wow. Actually, okay. and some of that, you know, the cool thing is, is that uh, uh, the Supreme Court brief that they filed, some of that money that they used to file that brief was paid for by the people who came to my show in Europe because we were able to donate a couple thousands of dollars. Uh, um, now, that's really good. And, and it's, I mean, obviously their life was on hold for quite a long period of time. I mean, that's, and that is the way it is, I suppose, with court cases, but that, I mean, how long was that? Was it six years or did it take even longer to? It, it was basically six years. So, so if you go to the next tweet about uh, yeah, the yeah. MPP. Okay, well, hang on a sec. Whoa. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so basically, um, the MPP uh, refers to the Remain in Mexico program. Uh, and, and basically what that is, is uh, it was a Trump era policy that stated uh, that while someone is waiting to hear on their claims of asylum, that they be basically sent to the Mexican border to await if they were uh, approved or not. Uh, the problem being, of course, that the Mexican border is extremely dangerous, and these people were basically often held up at gunpoint uh, uh, by the cartels. Some of them uh, were raped. There was murder. There was a lot of violence. Uh, and... Uh, uh, the Trump administration basically said it because they don't care, right? They basically mm. paid Mexico a lot of money in order to do this. Uh, the Biden administration is basically, you know, there's no, there's no kind way to say it. The Biden administration, it wants to keep doing that because it's cheaper to house them in Mexico than it is to house them in America while they await uh, th their verdicts. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, the Biden administration basically just said, well, we'll just make sure we do it humanely, despite the fact that there is no humane way in order to actually accomplish that goal but they don't yeah. know one's going to check so as long as you say the word humane people who are skimming the article are going to be like well okay that sounds better and then and then not pay attention so this tweet is about the border groups who basically uh walked out uh, uh when the biden administration tried to announce this and sort of the goal behind this is the fact that mexico has now stated uh that with biden power they would only go back to this if these refugees had a much easier right and uh, availability to counsel, basically if they had legal help while they were waiting their trials at the border. So the hope is that by these people walking out, Mexico will see that in fact, um, uh, these refugees will not have easy access to counsel. The Biden administration should not uh, 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 be believed when they say that there's a possibility to make this humane and uh, these people should have their claims heard in America where they will be safer from cartels and et cetera, exploitation, et cetera. Right, okay. And just, just for uh, listeners, I'm just gonna make it clear, this is a tweet from an organization called Welcome with Dignity. Uh, and the tweet runs, breaking border groups walked out in process of a meeting with the Biden administration officials just now regarding the administration's plans to resume the full MPP program. Uh, it's not possible to make the inhumane humane. And obviously you've had MPP uh, sort of explain to you now. So what, what are you, uh, you know, in the loop with what the next steps are, would be for that campaign? Right now it's to wait and see, to see if uh, the pressure affects the Biden administration. You know, for as horrible as the Biden administration is, compared to Trump, the main difference is that um, less pressure is required in order to get them to change their ways. Mm. They just need to be called out on it. Okay. 
however, they do still need to be called out on it with a decent amount of pressure. It's just that Trump wouldn't let losing court cases change his mind. Mm. No, no, that's right. I mean, they, he, he absolutely was quite... Uh, what's the word? Well, hardline is, 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 is a definitely a word. I, I, right. I, this is... Um, Good point. Uh, we sort of talked about this in the sort of uh, the beginning before we started streaming, uh, which was that it's now so we're October now. So we've had nearly a year since the election. Um, and for a lot of people in the UK, there is a perception of, well, we had four years of this crazy sort right. of uh, surreal dream of, of Trump. Now, Joe Biden has appeared. It all seems very quiet. He's president, not Trump. So that was good enough for a lot of people. What's what's your kind of report card for the last year for the Biden administration? Well, I mean, you know, the problem is that you can't really grade Biden without grading him on the curve that America has created. Right. Mm -hmm. So there has never been a president who has been good when it comes to dealing with refugees. You know what I mean? I mean, America is famous for turning a, a, a boat full of Jewish refugees trying to flee the Holocaust and we turn them away. Yeah. Gosh, no, uh, yeah. So, you know, the idea that, you know, Biden is a failure can be true, but within the context of all the presidents that came before him, he's, he's no different than a lot of the Democrats and still much better than most of the Republicans. So it's that unfortunate thing of understanding that Biden still represents progress, although he still also represents tragedy for the, most of these people trying to survive. Yeah. So it's a kind of best worst option scenario. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that sounds like politics, though. I mean, even, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Jeff Norcott is one of my clients and, and he's known as a as a conservative voting comedian. But his line is that the choice between the two main sort of party blocks is uh, a choice between, uh, you know, being waterboarded with sparkling or still water. I haven't obviously done that joke any uh uh, in, in verbatim terms, but you you see what he's getting at, and and that's obviously that can be very disappointing for activists, I would assume. You know, I mean, do you think that, that a lot of people had? I don't think it was a kind of Tony Blair Obama moment where where it was like the hopes the hopes of a nation on those two particular figures were so sort of sky high. I think people are just a bit more sort of a bit more savvy now, aren't they? Yeah, I think it was also just, you know, Biden was very much a compromise candidate that, um, <clears throat> you know, you could argue was still exceeded the expectations of what he has tried to get past. Um, it's just a... One of to understand and they take from this is the fact that... Is it? So you froze momentarily, but you're back. You're back in the room, it's fine. It's very quick. Good. It's a very quick freezing this week, that's good. So I know it's that not sounds my good. end. Uh, uh, but but he's basically he's a compromise candidate and I think you can argue that he's been more liberal than we had any right to expect him to be but you know I, and I wish moderates would understand that he hasn't gotten that much more done than say a Bernie or, or Elizabeth Warren would have gotten the idea that a very liberal candidate wouldn't be able to reach across the aisle um, that argument doesn't hold a lot of water when the moderate cannot reach across the aisle either right okay yeah, no, fair enough. That's a good point, actually. And that certainly was the that was the that was the sales pitch for Biden above, you know, above many of the other other sort of candidates. Yeah. Um, now we've got another, I think what we'll do is we'll kind of we're gonna bring this sort of into land with the more comedy story. So let's go, let's keep sure. on 
let's keep on forging through the, the political path. We're very, a very sort of um, meat and potatoes story in some respects, in the sense that it's the sense that it's about greed. It's like you know, um, right? What is going on here with David uh, Dowell's tweet, which simply <laughs> says, "How is this even legal?" So, for example, when Biden is trying to get things passed in the Senate, he needs a 50-seat uh, majority, which he has, to approve every vote. But as a result, that basically means if there is a senator with any particular whims, we often have to bow down to those whims because we cannot afford to lose a single vote. The senator who exploits this the most is a man named Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe Manchin right now is currently uh, in the midst of killing one of Biden's climate change policies. Uh, thank you, Martin, who can't get an upgrade. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things Joe Manchin always talks about is that he wants to do things in a measured manner. Uh, what he often never mentions is that although West Virginia is a big coal country state that would get hurt by this policy, uh, specifically Manchin will be helped by denying this claim because he makes 500K a year uh, from coal plants donating to, to him. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we've, uh, campaign. we've got the screenshot here, the New York Times breaking news, the heart of President Biden's climate agenda, a push to replace coal and gas-fired power plants. It's said to be likely to be cut from the budget because Senator Joe Manchin opposes it. And then they've got the Vice News headline, Joe Manchin makes 500k a year, $500,000 a year from one of the dirtiest coal plants in West Virginia. Um, is, is Joe Manchin, is he on the, sorry, is someone just, very close. He's on the Democrat side, or Joe Manchin is the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. Ah, right. Okay. So he's has he got, but uh, has he got quite an interesting voting record because of that? Has he he voted, does. Yeah. He's he's. We're basically in a very tough position with him because, uh, by all accounts, he will be the last uh, uh, Democrat elected in West Virginia for the next fifty years. Right. Okay. So what he you mean he's, is he's, an incredibly yeah. conservative Democrat. However, everyone who will replace him will be a thousand times more. Oh, oh no. Uh, so oh, there there's go. really nothing to do. Okay. I mean, because but, we need his vote. Yeah. I mean, we'll see, is, he, is it essentially, but are you saying that, is it going to go, is it going to go Republican next time though? Yes, the moment yeah. he retires, West Virginia will go Republican for the rest okay. of so he, all the time. He is, it's all so different than Ohio, which is in the same boat. Sherrod Brown, who is a very liberal senator, mm. also for whatever reason seems to be the only Democrat capable of winning in Ohio. And once he's gone, uh, Ohio will become a red state. But has Manchin basically um, tailored his politics because of his electorate, or was he already, well, by the sounds of it, he was already kind of um, pretty kind of conservative anyway. Yeah, he's, you know, he's known as a moderate uh, because, you know, America's pretty far to the right overall. But, um, you know, he, he's always saw, seen it as like, well, I would rather get nothing done than things done through the wrong sorts of processes or, or whatever. So, you know, it's, uh. it's unfortunate, but the only way to sort of get rid of his power is to elect senators in other states because in West Virginia, we're fucked. Isn't it, I mean, there was um, there was a couple of weeks ago. There was a, a climate change article in the in the Daily Mail, and it was it was a skeptic, climate change skeptic article. It was written by a Tory peer, and the Tory peer would sort of uh, own some kind of uh, a deep coal mine in 
somewhere in Nottinghamshire or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that was more of a kind of like it's one of those stories where you sort of think, oh, well, I'm kind of really not surprised. And I suppose for, for some British uh, observers to see this story about a, a Democrat might be a surprise, but I can see how he's of his kind of area. And that is a, that's a tricky one, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I can see how agonizing it is as well, because he, it's not as if you can get that situation that you mentioned, was it Idaho, where you can actually have some quite liberal who manages presumably through the force of their own personality and charisma to somehow be elected by what is essentially a very conservative electorate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting, interesting one. I mean, how is this even legal? What, who, who are, you know, who, who's going to adjudicate on, on that? I mean, is, is he going to meet some kind of uh, judgment on this? Or we... Yeah, uh, he'll be fine. I mean, I'm pretty sure Nancy Pelosi takes a lot of money as well. So it is what it is. Um, so that was actually the impetus for my show. Uh, 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 funny enough, like, you know, technically, we are not allowed to um, accept foreign donations. That's uh, generally still illegal when it comes to the United States. However, when it comes to things like climate change, when it comes to things like refugees, uh, the foreign people should have some say uh, because what happens in our world affects the people of the world. So the idea for the show was it's illegal for you guys to donate to these organizations and campaigns. However, it's actually very legal for an American comedian uh, uh, to donate to these things. And he can make his money however he wants to make his money. Um, so if you really want to hack the U.S. elections and you want to hack uh, the Supreme Court and pay for legal briefs that help refugees, go watch a comedy show uh, done by me and good good news, your tickets will actually go towards doing these things. My Some, some people might seem that as slightly cynical. <laughs> you'd, yeah. you'd get some, you'd certainly get some uh, flat caught off any right wing uh, sort of, I mean, they obviously want to make sort of mincemeat of that, wouldn't they really? You're essentially using it as a marketing ploy. I know you better, Sid, so I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that some people will use anything as grist to their meal, I think. I'll, I'll, let me put it this way. Who gives a shit? Like, <laughs> I, you, you call it whatever the fuck you want to call it, but as long as we can get some money to these organizations, uh, they can keep fighting. Uh, because you have to remember, you know, when you're in a refugee organization, you're still going up against the U.S. government, which yeah. has unlimited money to throw at making sure these refugees don't get asylum. Call me an asshole. You know what I mean? That's why I'll never be fully affiliated with these uh, uh, organizations so that it can always have the plausible deniability and I can keep pouring money into them. Yeah, but I think, you know, I mean, it's a good way of, it's a good way of, uh, of raising money. And I've seen you're going to be doing that on the second leg of the tour as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Right. Now, uh, as you mentioned, Martin had a little comment there. Can't get enough greed. Uh, hello, belated hello to you, Martin. Uh, absolutely dedicated star star viewer and listener uh great that you're here tonight so we've um we've pushed through some some difficult uh and but engrossing <laughs> uh sort of subjects here which is the you know that's that's the name of the game that's twitter that's the way he, uh she rolls absolutely um but we've got your tweet here from josh gondelman this is going to open i'm just going to open up fairly large uh open-ended discussion really on comedy i think and there's a there's a good number of things that have happened recently that we can sort of pick up on. So if you can just read uh, Josh's uh, tweet out and then we'll get into it. 
Yeah, sure. Josh Gondelman, who's a very, very funny comedian. Uh, I think he's now a executive producer for Jesus and Marrow, but he used to write for John Oliver's show for a long time. And his tweet basically says, one weird thing about the you can't say anything anymore take is that there is a massive amount of excellent stand-up comedy being performed, recorded, and released all the time these days. And uh, it's a very good tweet by a very smart man. Yeah, and, you know, he makes he does make a fair point because there is there is an awful lot of content of, of which a lot of it is very good. But this this opens it out uh, quite nicely because we're, we're we're post we're post Chappelle again, aren't we? We're here we are again. It's like um, oh the Martin uh, Martin knows his comedy. Josh is great. I'm now I'm absolutely going to have to look him up. And if I haven't already, thought, uh, no, you look silly silly me. I haven't even followed him. Have now. I've rectified that wrong. It's so. So the first thing that it kind of made me think of a little bit with with Chappelle, because there's been again and you know huge sort of fuss over. I haven't watched it, but God, I've read about it to the point where I just feel I either I feel like I have or I don't want to. I don't know. Uh, well, obviously, I'm going to watch it at some point to make my own mind up. But I mean, the whole sort of Chappelle stick at the moment is that you. You can't say anything, but here I am saying it and I'm going to cop the flack on it. And it's kind of been like self-perpetuating sort of cycle um, of that. And, you know, because I haven't seen it, I'm not going to absolutely judge, but I can't help noticing that everyone is is obviously talking about it. I mean, have you seen have you seen the show? Uh, yeah, I actually really liked it, uh, uh, which I know is like a, a tough thing to uh, admit as a progressive person, but like. You know, one of the things I, I wish people would understand about stand-up is uh, you don't have to agree. I don't want stand-up to agree with people. I want stand-up to, to, to hear their takes and laugh. But the idea of ever having to agree with someone like Chappelle or Burr or whoever you're, you know, even like a, a Hannah Gadsby, I think is such a weird um, requirement for stand-up comedy. I've never had it. I have a lot of friends who are conservative comics. Um, you know, it's funny, we were talking about this but just in the last topic, but for all the people who will claim that I have a cynical reason for raising money for these organizations, uh, they never seem to apply that to the comics who are like, you can't say anything anymore. I guess I'm the last bastion of free speech. Pay for the tickets. I'll take all the money. Like, you know, uh, 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 you know, I, I can listen. I can I can be cynical with the best of them. That's interesting. Look, so I'm basically saying that you're appreciating the craft and you're enjoying the show, whether or not you can agree with that person. And that's, that is really important. Um, um, so it sort of think, makes me think of two things. First thing is that the audience have always wanted to buy into a comedian. They've always wanted to be, uh, if, if possible, it's not always the case. They've always, they like the idea of being the comedian's friend or they'd be with the comedian in a bar and all the rest of it. That doesn't work with everyone. It doesn't work with, um, it doesn't particularly work with Jerry Sadovitz. It doesn't work with Scott Capuro necessarily, for example, or because um, I think the you know the dynamic there is that they enjoy the distance from each other right. uh, to some extent. But but there is a kind of the, the the way that it's counterintuitive in some ways is that some you know people need to feel like they are buying into the charisma of that um, comedian, and if they're saying something that is skews that slightly it can it can kind of um interrupt the flow of that relationship and i understand from a purely academic point of view or from a comedian's perspective rather than perhaps an audience perspective that you can 
Uh, it's a bit like what an old film teacher told me. He said, look, if you're not enjoying the film, it doesn't matter because you're looking at the cuts. You're looking at how, how the director, what the director is doing. And you can still enjoy the technical side of that, whether you are enjoying the content. Uh, and I think that's kind of a useful lesson because it can obviously apply to all art forms and it kind of carries through. But don't you, um, if you watch something from like one of your sort of conservative comedian friends that is jarring, I mean, say they say something about, um, you know, immigration that you find jarring. Is, does, does, that not, does that not detach you from their content and their narrative or, or is it just... Uh, no, so like, let me give you an example, right? Um, uh, I, I do talk about race a lot in my act uh, because I'm a brown man. It's just observational comedy to me. Uh, but I've often, I have uh, white friends who will often say, oh, if I said that as a white man, I mean, people wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't even let me say that. I'm like, yeah, you know why? Context, that's why. But some of them will go on stage and make that point and they'll make it in a way that's funny enough that I'll laugh because, you know, they did a good job with it. I can still disagree with their point, uh, 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 even if uh, even if their point uh, uh, actively would raise the idea of ignoring the context with which my disparity in society exists, they did a good job. It's funny, so good for them. <laughs> what do I care? That's okay. I mean, that's great. I mean, I th I think that's really that's good to hear that um, because obviously, the, you know, again, obviously, we're on a show about social media and that that context and that nuance is something that is often completely lost in on social media and certainly in terms of conducting an argument through social media i mean there's a comedian i know who and i can't remember whether they, they told me to the top they've actually said this publicly or not so i'm going to kind of paraphrase but i do know a comedian who was involved with a course um uh teaching other comedians and one of the people on the course basically turned around to them and said look uh, i kind of make it my business to go to open spot nights and when i hear anything that i don't think is uh you know on message should we say i call i call them out on it which just seems like a, such a strange way to approach it because you know you're not <laughs> you're not going to get that right all the time for a start and obviously it's completely subjective in terms of how you're applying that but I agree. that 100%. kind that kind of story is quite is sort of fairly sort of chilling and i do i, I hear a lot of that i mean what do you do you witness that on the circuit in terms of, do you feel that heckles are different? Do you feel the responses are different now to how they were in terms of how people are shocked, why they're shocked? Yeah, I mean, you have people who are now more empowered than ever to give their opinions. Like a lot of the, a lot of the issues in stand-up, uh, uh, if, if you can give, a, give it a real uh, opinion base, uh, comes from the fact that, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Basically comes from a lot of voices that have never been given the right to speak up, suddenly uh, speaking up. And then we have to now deal with the fact that this opinion we probably are uncomfortable with now exists in our space because the person who made it is finally empowered enough to say it. Mm. But generally speaking, I mean, one of the things people have to remember is heckling isn't common. You, you don't get heckled in every gig. If you get heckled in every gig, you're a terrible comedian. <laughs> you're consistent, uh, but you're terrible. You're yeah. terrible. Um, <laughs> you know, that's why I, I, there was like, you know, there was a trend like five or six years ago of like, oh, comedian destroys heckler. And, you know, 
some of those comedians would post like 50, 60 videos. And I'm like, who gets heckled 50, 60 times over a two, three year span? You're a terrible comedian. There's a well, reason you haven't posted a single clip of your material, but we have 80 clips of you calling a woman a cunt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, okay, that's true. You've they've obviously got form in some respects, but I think it's not. Yeah, I guess so. I think it's something that you know. There's some of the feedback I've heard is that, that, that it's not so much heckling now as as people just saying you you know you can't. They are saying in some cases you can't say that. Right. Um, so there's two versions of that, right? Um, the first, which is the most annoying to comics, are the ones who basically get, uh, quote unquote, triggered from uh, 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 a phrase, right? Uh, so I know Nico Yearwood has a joke that is uh, pro-gay rights, but it approaches it from a silly angle, mm. which makes it sound like it's about to be homophobic, even though the punchline clearly is uh, uh, pro-gay rights. Yeah. Kurt Metzger famously has this about... Um, uh, 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 pretty much basically the same topic ultimately Yeah, and um, you'll get people criticizing it because they haven't listened and one of the things that I think Nico did in a clip he posted recently a lot of yeah. comics should do is point out to the audience that this person didn't listen to you yeah I saw that clip Yeah. sometimes I think the biggest mistake a comic can make is to talk directly to the heckler after they heckle you when a lot of cases you're better off talking to the rest of the audience, mm. which actually did understand you isn't uh, on the heckler side and just reminding them that they're not on the heckler side is a great way to do that. But now doesn't Nico, now I mean, people listening and watching this should uh, sort of check out that clip. I can't remember how viral it went. Now for me, there was a, there was, he didn't want to burn his material, which is why the context wasn't there, but the clip, the kind of, the, the ending was there when he deals with the, the audience member, but that was a that was an example of him going direct to the heckler, which the audience seemed to really rather enjoy. No, see, I think he wasn't actually going directly to the uh, okay. uh, he was speaking at the audience yeah, member, yeah. but he was speaking it for everyone else to hear. Yeah, okay. So it was more of a it was more of a kind of uh, yeah, he's more of dressing the room, even though he was yeah 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 okay in, in this sort of theatrical sense yeah totally. At least that's how I perceived it. Yeah, no, it was a very, it was an interesting clip. And it actually makes you, you know, makes you want to go and see the show. And I don't know if that shows, um, that joke is in his special, but I still haven't caught up with that on YouTube, but I'm, right. I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, when, uh, when you selected this tweet, I literally the night before Chortle had tweeted, um, one of the writers of Airplane had written in uh, comment, on commentary.org uh, right. about offense. I don't, have you read this? piece yeah I yeah i i haven't read the chortle version of it i basically read his quote well, it's and, the same same thing i think yeah and uh you know um i understand the point he is trying to make so let's just recap for listeners sure, essentially sure. but what he was essentially and and said you can fill in as well but uh he was looking at sort of the knockabout comedy in airplane and uh, and making a case for that still standing up today because of the element of surprise uh, and because of the the the, the the jokes essentially being sort of victimless crime. I mean, I saw it. I mean, airplanes being repeated a lot recently, and there are sort of sequences where they are just so they are just so bonkers and over the top, but it it does kind of 
it goes past it, it tries to go past offense essentially uh, mm -hmm. but you've got the two characters that are talking in jive and then the white lady who's um uh, translating for them that was one of the examples that he mentions in the piece um i mean he didn't mention the the sort of skit where they're queuing up to sort of shut that woman up which is is all slapstick violence but i mean i just i can't i couldn't see anyone doing that today and and the piece is essentially about airplane it doesn't quite say airplanes wouldn't get made today, but that's essentially, I suppose, what it is saying, isn't it? <clears throat> right, that is what he's saying. Um, you know, I, and it goes back to two things. One, it, it goes back to the fact that social media is not real life. So people complaining on Twitter um, does not mean the majority of people wouldn't probably still like Airplane today. Airplane is a very silly movie. At the same time, some of this is because people who were previously voiceless who when Airplane came out probably were not comfortable with these scenes, the new generation versions of them are empowered to speak out about shit like this. Yeah. So when they see a scene where 30 people line up to hit a woman, they don't view it from the context of a middle-class, safe, suburban way of going, oh, this is clearly absurd. They go, people are hitting women a lot in real life. And so I would like to bring up that it's weird that we're using this as comedy right now when uh, it's just a real shit that like, it's not absurd if it's happening in real life, basically. Those people are now empowered to speak up. They can be annoying as hell. I'm a comedian, I like the silly stuff. They can be annoying as hell. That doesn't mean they're wrong, you know? <laughs> that's a lot, I like, that's a really sanguine take on it, Sid, and I think that's really important. I mean, actually, David Zucker has a phrase in this piece, he calls them the nine percenters, because I think, is it 9% of people who are on social media in the US and, I mean, I've had figures like I, I keep looking at the, the Twitter percentages and I'm never quite sure where it's resting. But um, but yeah, I mean, they are in that arena. Those voices obviously now sort of augmented. And, and there is always a, there is often a kernel of uh, um, there's always a sort of kernel of truth in terms of the statistics, that, for example. So you can look at domestic abuse statistics. But you can't deny that it's happening and you can't deny that. Um, the basics of sort of violence are inherent in that joke. I mean, people even talk about Punch and Judy shows in that in that sort of context. Um, but it's interesting because even though it's maybe sort of disparate voices or lone voices or voices now newly empowered because of the social media platforms, they seem to have a very um, a, an inordinate amount of power. They're reflecting an right. incredible amount of power. But that's because we choose to believe that they represent the world. They don't. They represent a part of the world. Mm. You know, one of the things I wish also was given more weight in these discussions is the context that comedy requires. You know, we often talk about the context that should be given to uh, the people who are watching this, disagreeing with whether they be from the right wing or the left wing. But we never talk about the evolution of comedy itself and the right to look at this art form as an ever-evolving piece where it's okay to cringe at things made 40 years ago it was made 40 years ago we now have 40 years more of context and information to inform our watching of those scenes which were never intended to have that much more information you know being put in it yeah yeah and and you know people weren't forced to put emphasis on certain policy areas or, or uh, you know issues because well i mean they ran with the agenda of whatever the agenda was at the time and that agenda is obviously splintered now by social media it's, it's like we're having to go around putting out putting out fires some of these things i totally understand that 
they were, you know, there were absolutely points that needed to be made because, I mean, essentially when we were growing, when I was growing up, you were a passive viewer. I mean, yeah, you could write to the TV Times or the Radio Times or, you know, Mary Whitehouse or Barry Took or, or something like that. There would be about only people over 45 can hear me now. But, um, you know, it, it, it's essentially you would not, you generally make the effort to do that. And there were things that we were asked to sort of take on trust, which, uh, you know, were certainly iffy. I'm glad, I'm glad we managed to dovetail um, those tweets. I'm, I'm very pleased that you, you'd read that piece as well. Anyway, I'd only seen it pop up last night. Um, but any, I mean, we're coming into land in terms of the end of the show now. So I've selected any other tweets that we haven't discussed at all here. Um, let's just quickly, I love this one, a very British reference, but from Michael Holden, uh, a uh, screenwriter and journalist. There would be no culture war if there were still top of the pops. You learn to sit through what you didn't like, uh, which I think is beautiful because we've all got memories of what were in the States. I don't, I don't know what the US equivalent would be if there was one of top of the pops. But it's essentially the kind of hit parade, the chart show, and you'd want right. to watch your favourite bands on it, but there would always be songs you didn't like. And, you know, that's a lovely point about being able to sit through something that you didn't like although in fairness if you scroll through twitter there's so much not, not to like <laughs> right <laughs> well you know the inverse is actually also true too I, I you know one of the problems with uh, uh the way we perceive art is we often criticize it in 2021 for not being to our standard for it to not be universal and uh uh you know why should that be the standard when all we've learned over the last 20 years is that art is becoming more niche? There's more of our groups. There's more of our culture. There's more of our echo chambers, if you want to you know, use that term. Mm. So why are we requiring art to go beyond it when some art will and some art won't? Yeah. Yeah. No, fair dude. Um, that we, we could talk about all that all night. It's been a fantastic hour, Sid. Um, it's been challenging and informative and uh, it, very to the point uh, i have to say it's been brilliant um as i say there's a there's a whole stream of tweets there we, we had a little chat about uh donald trump uh, actually facing his golden shower moment as well um so check out all those tweets uh, now sid tell everyone what you are up to next where can sure. we see you next well i'm running a a brand new stand-up night called code word comedy uh, every other Monday at uh, the new uh, a new venue called the Covent Garden Studios, which yeah. you can find in Covent Garden. Uh, and every other week, that's uh, uh, other than that, you can uh, find me uh, at uh, a show called Double Booked, which is also the Covent Garden Studios. So basically, I'll be at the Covent Just Garden Studios every in Monday. The Covent Garden Studios now. Okay, fantastic. Oh, we know uh, where to find you. I also recommend uh, you guys follow me on Instagram at Looking for Sid, ah. since that's where I tend to post more tour dates than I ever do on Twitter. Because to be honest, I really don't use Twitter that much anymore, other than to read tweets from people I consider experts. It's fine. We're we're now open. I I had you know when I first started this, I was thinking, oh, let's get the people in with a big Twitter following, and it's like, uh, and then I was like, no. I don't want that. I want the people I, because I started this on a curve of like, you know, really quite loving Twitter. And now I've, I've come back down to earth. But it, this this is therapy now. Um, so brilliant. So that's where we can see. You. So I, I totally don't have any excuse but to not come and see you now because I know exactly where you're going to be. Um, I'd love that. So you went, you're off to Barcelona soon, aren't you? Uh, yes. On Thursday, I go to Barcelona for the first attempt 
at doing my new show, Illegally Funny. Oh, okay, so how uh, <laughs> how are you how are you getting there? Oh, Martin, you're such a wag. He's just going to Barcelona. What's um what's the so you're in Barcelona kicking off the tour? But have you got like loads of European tour dates? Are we you know you're going to be in Hungary four times after that? that kind of thing? <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I'll I'll post those tour dates as they become official. Nothing is official yet, but uh, I think you'll be seeing a lot more of me and. UK festivals and uh, uh, internationally all over the EU. And you can follow me at Looking for Sid on Instagram or at Mr. Sid Singh on Twitter uh, for those tour dates as they become official. Fantastic stuff. Right, well, Sid, just uh, hang back for a while and we'll have a quick chat in the green room after we stop streaming. Uh, just thanks so much for everyone who's joined us tonight across our various streams, which I appreciate started approximately three or four minutes late because uh, I didn't press a button. but. I'm back in the swing of it now. It won't happen again. Uh, speaking of which, next week, which is Sunday, the 24th of October, uh, we will be joined by Pierre Novelli. And I very much hope that uh, my co-host, Sajila Kershi, will be joining us uh, after uh, uh, a long break, a long uh, break away. And I think she's, uh, she's really looking forward to that. So that's going to be good. There's going to be more boxes on the screen, as it were. Um, so I have to dig around with the formatting but yeah please do um please do follow us at lkt zoom look out for the next show look out for uh, the clips of this show which will be tweeted uh, asap and we'll we'll get a link for the youtube uh, version of this show sort of punted out on twitter just as soon as i formatted everything and i think that at the moment that's everything there is to say except thanks uh, so much for joining us once again after our two-week hiatus um, goodbye. See you soon. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Please do check out the other podcasts in the series. If you go to our website, www.letskilltwitter.com, you'll find all our previous shows listed and you can find links to the YouTube versions as well as audio files. If you'd like to support our work, you can do via buymeacoffee.com. If you go to their website, you'll find a Let's Kill Twitter page set up for donations. But anything you can do is much appreciated. A like, a follow, a recommendation to a friend, it all counts. Once again, thanks for listening. We hope to be in your ears again very soon.